Hello and welcome to Warwick Podcasts from the University of Warwick. This week, Richard Fern talks to Chris Moran about the spooked Cultures of Intelligence in Britain conference, hosted at the University of Warwick on Saturday the 12th of May. Joining Richard and Chris is Rob Johnson of Warwick's Department of History. Well, a conference on, on intelligence is, is certainly timely. Uh, the steady release of new documentation, accelerated by the end of the Cold War and, and the recently emergent Freedom of Information Act, has, has ameliorated, I think, a subject that was once memorably described as, as the missing dimension. Contemporary threats to international security in the wake of 9-11, the Iraq War, coupled with um, the alleged politicisation of intelligence historiography, um, have, have further stimulated and, to some extent, inflected academic debates. And the conference, really, that, 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 that I've organised is, is bringing together some of the doyens, the leading figures in the field of intelligence. Um, we have, speaking on the day, Professor Christopher Andrew, um, the official historian of MI5, who in 2009 will be releasing a multi-volume history of the service to commemorate, commemorate its 100 years uh, in, in service. Joining him is, is Professor Richard Aldrich, author of, of, a, of a path-breaking study, The Hidden Hand, um, Professor Anthony Glees, the director of the Brunel Centre for Intelligence Studies uh, in, in, in West London, Professor Philip Murphy uh, from Reading University, uh, Mr Stephen Dorrell, uh, the author of MI6, 50 Years of Operations, again a, a canonical text for the intelligence scholar. Uh, and also Dr Philip Davis, who's more interested in, in the sociology um, of intelligence organisations. What will be the key themes for the conference? Well, perhaps the, 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 the central theme, uh, and I think this is where we might uh, see a schism between those who adhere to the left and those who adhere to the right, is to what extent the intelligence services are acting as interlocutors with the core executive, or to what extent... Uh, they are, in effect, operating as a rogue or maverick organisation um, without accountability to the central administration. And no doubt this will impinge on questions of the Iraq, uh, pertaining to the Iraq war uh, and its aftermath. Somehow I have this image of all these people coming up onto campus with like, full-brimmed hats and turned-up collars. <laughs> Rob, is this a good time to be talking about cultures of intelligence and, and, and spies? It's a critically important time, Richard, because um, we are very interested, I think, as a general public in the uh, emerging terrorist threats around the world, the idea of, of global uh, Islamic jihadism. I think particularly we're interested in um, the way that intelligence services operate. Um, and there is some considerable anxiety in Britain and indeed around the world that intelligence services perhaps operate in a way which threatens our civil liberties um, I think there's also what we have to say here is a, a long historical interest in, in intelligence matters. Um, as Chris says, it's a missing dimension. Um, and I think there's been a great deal of interest in the sort of stories that have emerged about Bletchley Park, the, the Station X, Absolutely. Um, the Enigma uh, machines and so on. I think um, there's always a lingering interest. And I think there's a popular culture here too, which Chris Certainly. and I are very familiar with, Certainly. the idea of James Bond. Um, you know, our, our intelligence services really like the kind of glamorous silver screen image. Chris, what fascinates you about the history of spies? Sure, I mean, where, where my own um, research is coming from, the thesis itself is, is tentatively entitled Whitehall and Official Secrecy 1945 to 1979. I'm interested in how intelligence history surfaces in, in the public domain. Um, the intelligence services are adept not only at creating history, 
but also influencing how it is written. Um, and that's, that's sort of my, my angle. So nowadays we find ourselves in Iraq. Uh, 50 years ago we found ourselves in East Germany. Rob, how has the role of the spy changed and what role does ethics have for the intelligence community? Well, first of all, the interesting thing about ethics and, and intelligence services, they seem to be completely contradictory. I mean, the idea of acquiring information, which uh, you, you know, essentially you're thieving information, secret intelligence, um, does seem entirely unethical. Um, because we should remember that a, a considerable volume of intelligence material comes from open sources. So it's not all acquired by sending people into sort of dark offices with, armed with a microfilm camera. Um, and I think the other thing is as well that we forget that intelligence isn't just about gathering information. I mean, the, the problem now and since the Cold War is the sheer volume of information that there is to process. And it's the analysis mm. of the so-called projection of so-called product, as the intelligence services would call it, that is now much more important. The other thing that's um, often associated with intelligence services is the idea of covert operations, that somehow um, these clandestine secretive figures um, perhaps carried assassinations, what the uh, the KGB used to call wet operations, uh, or that somehow um, anybody who is a, a bit of a dissident uh, could be put under pressure or threatened. Now, there are, of course, intelligence services around the world that do have this very wide remit. Um, in Britain, which is the, the focus course of the, the conference we're looking at, the culture is, is much more ethically based than that. Uh, and indeed, you know, the successive heads of um, intelligence services have been at pains to point out that the, in the whole process of recruiting intelligence staff, having uh, ethical standards where they can operate uh, within the bounds of the Constitution, within the bounds of the law, are essential, even without regulation. And that has a very important practical reason. Uh, if you go around and start killing off um, your enemies uh, using these clandestine methods, if you start to use torture, for example, uh, to acquire information, very quickly people will know that your intelligence service is not one that you can trust. It's, it's, people come to uh, volunteer information to the British intelligence services because they know they're not going to be tortured. They disclose information much more rapidly. So there's actually something about ethics which is terribly important today, and in fact has always been historically. Uh, the classic one is the issue of using people as expendable resources. You know, the idea that, well, if he gets caught, we can classically, we can simply disown him. Uh, what's very interesting about the British intelligence um, history is that, that actually is incredibly rare. It was much more common to look after their personnel. Um, and indeed, today, you know, the, so much money and, and time and effort is, is placed into this resource that you don't, you don't simply dispend them. You, you, uh, you look to kind of make use of that resource uh, and keep them. Because um, we all know that the, the very best intelligence sources from an intelli human intelligence point of view is to get someone high up in the hierarchy of the organisation you're trying to explode uh, and that uh, you can't do that instantaneously. It's very hard to recruit a senior officer uh, in, a, in a foreign threatening regime. What you do is you groom the younger members of staff, the middle managers, until such time as they become um, senior. But the business of, of accountability and ethics is something that, that Chris is, is dealing with. I mean, Chris, what's your take on, on how accountable intelligence services are or indeed have been historically? Sure. Uh, I mean, certainly a, a central debate uh, within the field of intelligence at the moment is to what extent the intelligence services are interacting, are intersecting with the work of, of the core executive. Now, if you take the approach of, of those on the left 
uh, wing of the of the political spectrum, you would probably argue that the the intelligence services are operating as a state within a state, uh, something of a, of, a, of a rogue organisation operating perhaps even beyond prime ministerial control and regulation. Whereas those um, working on, on, on from a sort of from the centre, if you like, or, or those on, on the right wing, would argue that the intelligence services are regularly liaising with the core executive. They are, in effect, crucial interlocutors uh, with central administration, with central government. I think, in terms of change between the Cold War and, and the sort of twenty first century, where we are in two thousand and seven, during the Cold War, we we arguably knew uh, the capability of our enemy. Um, that was the essence, if you like, of mutually assured destruction and deterrence. Um, but we didn't always know exactly what the enemy's intentions were. And that, in effect, is the essence of a bi- what an international relations theorist would call a bipolar conflict. Whereas in 2007, arguably, we know the intentions of the enemy. Um, we know exactly that they're, you know, they're ultimately concerned with the, you know, the, the destruction of the West. But what we don't know is their capability. Uh, and that is emblematic, really, of uh, again of what a game theorist would refer to uh, as a as as a multipolar conflict, um, the inherent multipolarity of the intelligence world in which we now will now live in. Many would suggest that the aim of the Islamic jihadist organisations is not the destruction of the West at all, but actually is self-defence, and that one of the difficulties in this new um, multipolarity, as you just quite rightly describe it, um, is that uh, we don't know where the enemy are. Uh, we mm. don't know who our enemies are. I mean, in many cases, it's the ambiguities of, of who those members of terrorist organisations are and who they're not, which raises so much anxiety, raises a temperature of fear and terror, if you like, in the United Kingdom, which then has the unfortunate byproduct of recasting that fear back on, um, let's face it, the Muslim community mm. of the United Kingdom. Interestingly enough, it, uh, uh, the ideological side of it, of course, is critically important, and uh, that's what, in a sense, links together both the, the Cold War of the 20th century and the 21st century um, intelligence conflicts. What's particularly interesting for us here, though, I think, is the uh, issue of checks and balances. I mean, mm. if uh, intelligence regimes are to, or intelligence-led regimes are to be uh, accountable, there is a distinct tension, is there not, between um, disclosure information uh, to the public, for the public interest or in the public interest. Um, I mean, and after all, if we know who terrorist suspects are, it's going to alert the public to uh, how to deal with them. If uh, we're, we're bringing the, the, the general public of Great Britain into our confidence, uh, it may well be that we can defeat a terrorist threat together and, and that, therefore, information must be in the public domain. On the other hand, the other problem is that disclosing too much information puts those very uh, security personnel, intelligence personnel at risk, uh, may well um, be a problem in terms of disclosing uh, aspects of tradecraft, which perhaps we'll talk about in just a moment. I wonder, Chris, if you can say some more, though, about how this issue of, of disclosure of information, uh, I mean, how is it, how do uh, governments manage to, to balance this, the security of information whilst maintain, r- remaining accountable? To the public at large, yes, the the, the issue of, of of openness is 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 absolutely crucial to, to not only the conference but also to my to my own research. Um, I mean, obviously, as it, as you sort of intimated, there are certain things that the intelligence services cannot disclose. The identity of agents being foremost among them. I mean, I would perhaps argue that the the intelligence services are not so much becoming less secretive per se, but they're more inclined to embrace pr- publicity. I think compared to the Cold War, there has been a seismic change in in levels of openness. Uh, During the Cold War itself, the very existence 
of MI5 and MI6 um, was denied. Um, it was only in 1989 that MI5 was given uh, statutory approval, um, and I think it was in May 1992 John Major spoke for the first time in the House of Commons about a secret intelligence services, uh, secret intelligence service, otherwise, of course, commonly known as 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 MI6. It's perhaps not surprising when you look at this historically, because I mean there were classic examples in the 19th century when uh, getting the idea of disclosure. Uh, right uh, was clearly not happening. They were getting it completely wrong. Um, one of the people that I came across um, when doing some research in India was a chap called Colonel Walker, who ran the uh, sort of survey of India for some time in the 1870s. And he published details of missions of his agents in Central Asia and in the Himalayas without permission. And when he was actually um, told, you know, do not disclose this information, including the kind of the secretive spycraft activities of hiding um, materials and, and concealing one's compass and so on. Um, Despite the fact he was told not to disclose information, he did it again. And he's actually found uh, going to Russia uh, and disclosing all the information with, with Britain's so-called erstwhile enemy. There were episodes where British intelligence was um, getting it absolutely right um, and that uh, national security certainly was at stake. One um, classic example would be in 1925 where um, SIS and MI5 um, learnt that the Communist Party of Great Britain and the Comintern um, actually intended to subvert the British army, and some steps uh, were already well advanced in smuggling uh, diamonds, believe it or not, into the UK in order to uh, convert to cash and then buy off those members of the armed forces, with, a, again, a view to grooming these people uh, in later life so that as they became the senior command structure of the British army that they would be very much infiltrated. Now, this was not only blown uh, by the work carried out by British intelligence, but also what it revealed was further information that um, members of the Communist Party of Great Britain were planning to go to India uh, to try to mobilise the Indian um, Union organisations, particularly uh, one individual, Percy Glading, uh, actually did set off to India and carried a reconnaissance. And when in the following year, 1926, George Allison tried to do the same thing, he was actually arrested. Um, Philip Spratt uh, was also blown um, in 1927, but very cleverly there, again, a classic of its type, really, they didn't actually uh, intercept him and for another two years so they could pick up absolutely every single member of his network. The only problem they had was when they went public, because in the trial of these uh, members of the Communist Party of Great Britain and also Communist Party of India, um, those members used their trial as an opportunity to broadcast what their views were and win more converts to their cause. So the actual moment of going public was actually one of the areas of, of sort of weakness. But Chris, I, I, you know, your area is, is much more involved with the Soviet Union and Britain's uh, means of dealing with that. Can you say a bit more about how they... Right. I mean, certainly our, our knowledge of Soviet intelligence uh, in the Cold War is, is far less than what we now know about the British intelligence services over the same period. Uh, there have occasionally been these fortuitous insights into the Soviet world, uh, most notably, I guess, in, in, the, in the early 1990s, uh, when authors such as Christopher Andrew, in collaboration with Russian defectors uh, such as Oleg Gordievsky, managed to charm their way into KGB archives. Um, and indeed, Christopher Andrew, over the last five to ten years, has been engaged in uh, a two-volume uh, piece, the Matrokin Archive, uh, Vasily Matrokin, uh, a Soviet um, defector, um, had actually been sort of storing um, 
KGB records in his garage uh, for the best part of 20 to 30 years and came over to, uh, to Vauxhall Bridge in 2001-2002 and said to MI6, here you go boys, um, and, and MI6 uh, concurrently then um, appointed Christopher Andrew as the, as the uh, official historian of, of those archives. Coupled with that, of course, we've now got uh, redacted versions of, of Venona signals uh, entering the, the public domain. I was going to ask you about sources, Chris, because, um, I mean, for me as a sort of historian, largely 18th, 19th and early 20th century, acquiring intelligence, you know, uh, resources as an historian are, are relatively, I say relatively straightforward. Um, I mean, you can find, you know, in, even in diplomatic and private correspondence references to the way that they felt that spying was an ungentlemanly business and they didn't want to erect the kind of police state that they associated with, say, Russia or Germany uh, in the early 20th century. Um I mean, in a sense, the, the source material of the Cold War era surely is much more difficult to acquire. What, what are historians doing now? What's different, perhaps, since the Freedom of Information Act that has changed the way the historians work on the subject? Yes, I mean, just t- t- taking the tail back a little bit further, perhaps, um, in the early 90s with the uh, inauguration of, of the Waldegrave Initiative by John Major, um, historians have now got a full complement, uh, almost, of intelligence records from the First and the Second World Wars, um, however, as I sort of suggested earlier, the records of, of MI6 are indefinitely closed after, after the period 1911. Um, Cold War historians have nevertheless tried to circumvent um, this, this sort of methodological dilemma uh, by putting in freedom of information requests. Um, another big area, I guess, at the moment is, is oral history. Um, exploiting opportunities to, to quote Richard Aldrich, grow their own records um, by conducting interviews with practitioners of the intelligence community uh, and therefore sort of supplementing their oral histories with work at the history supermarkets, again borrowing an expression from, from Richard Aldrich, a history supermarket such as the, the National Archive. Christopher Andrew has also demonstrated how, in, how uh, historians of intelligence can glean intelligence information and material from what he calls adjacent records such as treasury foreign office uh, and home office files and then of course there there are um, then of course there are official historians uh, such as Christopher Andrew uh, who have been afforded access um, to to classified information well it's interesting isn't it because um, you know now we're in a new era an era of information war and so this whole business about disclosure and and how accessible that information is has become even more critical. I guess there's always going to be, as you were saying a moment ago about MI6 records, that there's always going to be something we don't see. Um, and, and yet it seems to me that intelligence services today are playing new games. They're not just the traditional ones that I've been involved in researching over many years, but new games of uh, what we call psychological operations or information war operations. Uh, not just smear campaigns or deliberately framing your enemies, nothing quite as obvious as that, but more subtle misinformation. One of the, the unfortunate corollaries of, of, of the missing dimension um, is that for members of the public, uh, for the citizenry, um, arguably their only point of access to the world of the intelligence community is through mediums such as James Bond, John le Carré, Len Dayton. Um, and it's no wonder that Christopher Andrew has derided um, this pejorative airport bookstall school of intelligence historiography, which he argues is often offering distorted and sensationalised accounts of, of the intelligence community. Although, you know, we tend to disparage, and, and I know serious you know, academic historians do tend to disparage the whole image, the cold cultural image, the popular cultural image too of, of intelligence through Bond and everything else, that actually 
um, we shouldn't throw the baby out with the bathwater. There are some interesting um, you know, uh, things you can learn from, from even that popular culture, the way that, that gadgetry is used, the use of disguises, even, even classically uh, boys' own things like invisible ink. Um, you know, th- these were quite important. There was a, a British intelligence officer who was um, captured by um, southern Iranians, very topical, I guess, uh, by Persians, of course, in those days, under the auspices, under the command of a German intelligence agent called Wilhelm Vasmus. And um, this chap, O'Connor, Frederick O'Connor, and his Indian uh, bearers were captured, uh, and they were confined by these Iranians uh, in the south. No one knew where they were. Um, they were taken away from their original headquarters, their, their consulate. Um, and to all intents and purposes, they were, they were lost. Now, Frederick O'Connor um, very quickly realised what the limitations were of his opponent. And he wrote an invisible ink message uh, in lemon juice on the bottom of a, a, an official letter to be sent out to um, British intelligence. Now, one of the, the risks of using invisible ink of that old-fashioned nature in a hot country like Iran is that it heats up. And, of course, you can reveal the lettering. Um, but, uh, fortunately, he's a very watered-down version. But, but how, do you, how do you communicate, of course, that there's an invisible ink message there if you're simply writing a very, you know, kind of boring message at the top? Um, what he decided to do was he realised that his captors did not speak Italian. So he said at the top of that, I'd like to have three books sent to me, please. Rascal uh, del Sul Fuoco, La Pata Bianca di Questa Lettera. Three books. And actually, if you put those three titles together in Italian, they say... Um, heat over a fire the white part of this letter uh, and that way he was able to convey the secret uh, message uh, give away his location and the British intelligence services responded by sending him a compass and a small map wrapped up inside a packet of biscuits so this old-fashioned bit of intelligence work believe it or not still goes on and we heard only last year about the revealing of a, of a so-called rock in Russia which actually was a transmitting station and listening station Chris surely 007 has done a tremendous disservice to MI5 and MI6? Well, as, as, as we suggested earlier, the likes of, 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 of Christopher Andrew would, would probably dismiss um, Ian Fleming's novels and the work of, of the likes of John le Carre as being part of this pejorative airport bookstall school of intelligence historiography. And it is probably worth adding, however, that 007 is probably a, a vehicle for recruitment uh, and is very useful, I think, in, in rehabilitating um, the role and, and the public image of the intelligence services. The very first Bond novel, of course, Casino Royale, which came out in the early 1950s, uh, emerged in a zeitgeist and a climate that had just become accustomed to the, um, the, the defections of Burgess and Maclean. Um, the, the, the heritage theme of the British intelligence service that was enshrined in, 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 in SOE uh, and sort of Churchillian um, images of intelligence had long since dissipated. So I think Bond, therefore, uh, in the early 1950s, his role was to rehabilitate the British intelligence services. And arguably in 2007, with the release of, of Casino Royale, he's exer- he, he served exactly the same purpose um, in the light of alleged politicisation of, of intelligence historiography and the mismanagement uh, of intelligence um, information by its consumers. Again, Bond has come along arguably at precisely the right time uh, for Britain's intelligence community. How do you think the intelligence services will change over the next 20 years? I don't think they will change enormously because although the nature of the threat might shift um, and some of the new technologies will come in and assist intelligence services to gather information um, much more efficiently than perhaps they're doing right now, 
I think in terms of tradecraft, you know, the actual on-the-ground how spies operate um, and the importance uh, of signals intelligence and the importance of, of uh, just the whole electronic world, if you like, how important that is, will not diminish. Um, and I think also from the, a UK intelligence perspective, um, what's uh, critically important is, is all the arguments about whether we admit phone tap evidence in courts, whether we get the right people and whether you know people feel they've been unjustly treated, um, I think will pale into significance in the long run because um, what people will remember is that uh, there is a constitution which governs the way that the British uh, you know, political system and intelligence services operate. Ministers will lead. They will always lead on it. Um, that there is a, a rule of law, uh, which means that even if intelligence services suspect somebody, they cannot simply go and pick them up as they could in a di dictatorship. Evidence has to be handed over to the police. Um, these matters have to be dealt with in a court of law. And it, for those who people who are falsely accused and have to go through that process, yes, it's a very, very unpleasant business. But I have some faith in the fact that the legal system will continue to protect us. Whereas if you contrast the United Kingdom, for example, with, um, let's say, Myanmar or Burma, um, with Pakistan, with some of the African republics, uh, and even to some extent with the United States, I think that the British constitutional process will remain supreme. Sure. I mean, I think that the, 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 the age of, of mass, mass communications and the continuing prevalence of, of intelligence in, in mass media discourses will ultimately preclude um, the silence, if you like, that has hitherto surrounded the intelligence community. I think you're likely to see over the next 10 to 20 years further examples of noisy uh, covert or, or special, I mean to employ the, the sort of military lexicon, special operations taking place, perhaps in, 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 in areas of, of, of the world that, that you wouldn't expect. For those people seeking further information about the upcoming conference, they should go to the University of Warwick website, uh, warwick.ac.uk, uh, and then find their way to the history department. Bob Johnson, Chris Moran, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. If you would like to hear more from Warwick Podcasts, then visit the university's podcast page at www.warwick.ac.uk slash go slash podcasts. Next week, we examine the recent breakthroughs announced in the fight against obesity and ask whether they really are the revolutionary solutions that they promise to be.